and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public sector and how it serves the Australian community. My name is David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting today, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of all the lands from where anybody listening to this podcast is joining us from. So each year during NAIDOC week, Australians are invited to celebrate the history, culture and achievements of our First Nations people. While more and more people in Australia recognise the crucial role that our First Nations people play in looking after country and making Australia a place we can all enjoy and love living in, First Nations people still face significant adversity, which makes it difficult for them to pursue higher education or reach senior executive positions in either the public or private sectors. Today, we'll speak with Lisa Conway, a Yorta Yorta woman who has overcome major adversity and privation in her life to succeed in a career of helping others. She's currently researching the critically important topic of cultural responsiveness in order to improve service delivery for minority groups here in Australia. Now, Lisa Conway is a Sir Roland Wilson Pat Turner Scholar at the Australian National University and is also a National Manager with Services Australia, and she joins me now. Lisa, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thank you, and I'm here on Wadawurrung Country here, so acknowledging their country as well. Fantastic. So, listen, um, a story always has a beginning and I'd, I'd love to know what your story is. My story, um, well, I guess I am a Yorta Yorta woman, as you know, so my family um, is quite interesting. My father, um, his family, his mother's from Stolen Generations and, and my mum is actually a forgotten Australian, so grow, grew up in some a pretty interesting time and I guess, uh, yeah, eventually one day found myself um, in a Centrelink office looking for support and um, was sort of guided down the road of getting a scholarship to go and study social work and and totally changing my life really. So from that point um, ended up working in government and I've now been in government for 17 years um, at what was Centrelink and now Services Australia and now find myself studying, as you said, doing my PhD um, at ANU. Now, I... I don't want to be too nosy, but can you just sort of explain to to us and to many people who are listening who have never had to live through the trauma of of growing up in in the circumstances that you did? But could you share with us just what that meant to be, uh, you know, the child of someone who was from the stolen generation, um, someone who was forgotten? Just what was that like, and what did it mean? I guess from uh, for me, it was. Uh, what that meant was is that my parents, um, neither of them had grown up in an environment where they knew how to be parents themselves. Like they'd never been parented. They'd grown up in institutions. And it meant that they, um, they we had that intergenerational trauma where people, they, you know, experienced a lot of hardship, a lot of abuse and, and didn't have parenting skills. And, and I guess so my kids are the first in five generations to uh, not 
have grown up in some form of state care at some point. So, yeah, it's a tough time and we, we you face discrimination. Um, because of my skin colour, I don't have the dark skin of the stereotypical Indigenous person, so I quite often felt like I wasn't accepted as a, um, a a white person, but then also would be questioned about whether I was Indigenous. So um, it's a, it's an interesting time growing up uh, without those, I guess, those things that are in place to support you to be nurtured and, and reach your maximum potential. So, yeah, it was a, a challenging time. And again, I, look, I don't want to push you too far, but are there stories that you you could share with us that could help us to better understand just exactly, you know, what life was like growing up? in that type of environment? Um, Well, I guess there's things about my family, like growing up um, in a country school where uh, everybody in that, uh, everybody in that town were the local farmers and they were all related. And then there was my family who were uh, uh, my dad's extended family who were all considered what they called the tip rats. So we'd be called the tip rats um, at school and, and by people around. And, and even when you do well for yourself, you'd be, people would sort of say, you know, oh, she's not like the rest of them. And, and so you get this really complex sort of feeling of, you know, trying to be proud but still being ashamed and, and, and that was really hard. And, and right up till even after I um, left home, like my when I first started at Centrelink, uh, working at Centrelink, I was living in my car for the first six weeks, and 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 like you know going into work every day, trying to get you know that government pay slip that would give me the chance to get my own house, and and going into work every day and pretending that I'd been to the gym and having a shower at work before I started for the day, um, with them not knowing that I was living in the car park um, in the shopping centre at night. Yeah, where did you find the resilience? To just keep going, how how where did that come from? That's a really good question, and it's something that I quite often ask myself. You know, what is it? How do we break these cycles? And and I guess for me, um, part of it um, is that I am uh, academically I, I do okay. So so I think that some education was something drilled into me, and so I, I always had that bit of a background for me. But I guess the real resilience for me, I think, though, is is that is about knowing my why like on the I've got this ancestral mandate I guess that uh, my job is to um, to make differences for people and so I always just had to keep moving forward keep moving forward and my kids I guess for me um, when I had kids that was a real wake-up call it was time to break the cycle I needed things to change and so um, I needed to make that difference for my own kids but then it became a bigger thing I needed to make that difference to my people in general and and so um so you just keep moving forward I guess that's what it is it's not that I don't know that I see myself as more resilient than other mob um it's more that um I just grab the opportunities and just keep going (laughs) who was the mentor who who pushed you towards an understanding and appreciation that the probably the only way out for you was through education. Ironically, it started with my father. My dad, um, he only did halfway through year seven or form one it was back then. Um, And by then he was in between care and on the streets in Melbourne. And um, so he felt that he never had that opportunity, didn't have education. And he, and, and a lot of people in my family felt really strongly about education. Education is something that nobody can ever take away from you. You can lose your home, you can lose 
you know, you have your family torn apart, but if you've got an education, nobody can take that. And I guess that started there. Um, but after that, um, ironically, it was through Centrelink and, and through, so by being a customer, being going in there and then um, having career counselling from them to say, hey, you should go and study, you know, you can do this. Um, and and from there, I've just always been really lucky. I've had lots of mentors within the public service who um, I guess and this is what sometimes what we need is the people that are going to champion you when, you know, they believe in you and you don't believe in yourself and, and that's really um, makes a huge difference. Look, and I, I'm not going to push too much further, but I just quickly before we go, I just want to walk back to something you said which is just horrendous um, that you and your family and your friends were described as tip rats. Uh, that just is horrendous um, to think that that would have been said to you. And looking back from where you are now, how, how do you understand that? And this will be the last question around that before we sort of move into the other areas of the conversation. But that, it, that just was like a punch in the guts when, to me when you, when you said that word. Yeah. Um, I think the saddest part for me about all that is that at the time, um, I, I, we accepted it. It was almost like I had been called that for so long um, growing up that it, it didn't occur to me that it wasn't okay um, for people to see us that way. It was just more of a sense of shame about that's who we are and that's how it is. Um, reflecting back, like I can see that that was the culture of Australia in the, you know, we're talking the 1970s and 1980s and that, and that was a culture like that sort of racism was quite um, avert. People, it was, it was really out there and, and yeah, it, it was a standard that, that was acceptable in the community and was acceptable even to us. And I guess the difference now is, is that I would never stand for that now. Like I would, I would never stand for that. And I guess that's how far Australia really has come. Um, I know we've got a long way to go, but I think that Australia's come a long way um, in that that would never happen um, to my children in the school grounds now. And if it did, I'd be the first person down there. <laughs> to say something about it, yeah. Great. Well, listen, thank you very much for sharing that um, personal history um, with us because I think it does help to locate just how challenging some of these attitudes are, that some of these mindsets are that we need to perpetually confront in order to make progress. We can't walk away from it, but we do need to, to talk about it so we can build that deeper understanding. But your journey, as you say, you went to Centrelink as uh, a a customer, but before you started working for Centrelink, it was down this path of being a social worker. But um, I read in an interview with the Geelong Independent that your family often feared social workers. So, how, can you explain that? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess having family that have been, you know, removed for one reason or another, whether whether they were like stolen in that traditional sense um, of the stolen generations or if it was just people um, taking from our families because of neglect or other um, issues, uh, it what it meant was is that we had a genuine fear um, of social workers um, because to us they meant child protection or they meant government workers and it was about people who were out to destroy our families when, when um, obviously that's not necessarily how social work what social workers are meant to be and and I, it, I found it really ironic that 
I was told that uh, the right career for me after doing this career counselling would be social work. Um, yeah, but, but, yeah, but, but yeah, social workers have had, had a lot to be responsible for during the, that stolen generation era and, um, yeah, we would, we would move interstate, we'd move, you know, to Queensland and back um, a few times to avoid um, child protection um, to try and keep us kids within our family because in in my family that keeping your family together was the safest thing to do because when my parents grew up away from family they were subjected to a lot of abuse in in you know children's homes and and you know so for for my family they're trying to keep us safe from the people who are meant to be keeping us safe in your in an earlier answer you you did mention that you know you feel um this greater responsibility now, not just to your own family, but to more broadly. Your PhD research is, in fact, looking into ensuring that that cultural responsiveness, um, that it does underpin policy and and decision makers, uh, decision making. So, in fact, Centrelink social workers are currently required to undergo um, cultural responsiveness training that you, in fact, developed. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is cultural responsiveness yeah so cultural responsiveness um is very much about understanding that we all have different cultures and we all have different experiences that influence our culture and our worldviews. and so if you to take it back to the, our conversation about social workers for example um if we were to be culturally responsive if if an aboriginal person came into a centrelink office and they were experiencing hardship or like homelessness or something that they might actually rather than reach out to a social worker and want to engage with them um, and talk to them about that because of the cultural differences um, an Aboriginal person going into a white government organisation could be quite fearful about sharing the fact that they're struggling because they're already worried that their children could be taken from them so you know they've got that that level of trauma about concern so reaching out for help can sometimes mean um, being vulnerable and opening yourself up to actually um, being under scrutiny of somewhere like child protection. So, so it's about so so really cultural responsiveness. In the past, we'd say cultural awareness, which was about let's learn as much as we can about Indigenous culture, um, so that we can engage better with you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But um, that's not enough because, like, I might be a Yorta Yorta woman, but a, there might be another person who's a Yorta Yorta woman, but they have grown up in a different experience. They might have grown up on country. They might have only found out yesterday that they're connected to Yorta Yorta people. We all have these different experiences. Um, and so it's about understanding, though, that it can be quite different, but also um, understanding that y- you yourself will have uh, biases um, and and experiences yourself that will actually uh, ch- change how you might approach a conversation with somebody or or how you make decisions about them. So it just means that it's really important to be thinking about the experience of the person you're working with um, and how they might experience in your culture, how the cultures intersect, and then you know accounting for that and 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 dealing with the imbalance of power and the fear that might be you know felt by like an Aboriginal person coming in. So yeah. So would it be would it be fair to say it's sort of the applied end of cultural awareness, and really it's about equipping um, our public servants with the tools to be able to, I suppose, deal with uh, their clients uh, appropriately. 
So is it they've, they, that they've got that, that ability not just to know but to be able to do something about the situation of the client who would be sitting in front of them? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's application, I guess, because and quite often that's what happens. We teach people about Indigenous culture, but then what do you do with that? What how do you actually use that in your day to day? And and probably the most important aspect of it too, I guess, um, David, is that cultural humility is a really important part of this. So we get we teach people about Indigenous culture, but then they need to understand that they need to be have the humility to realise, okay, I'm not an expert in this person. Um, they're the expert and I need to, even though I've got the bit of an understanding of what their culture is about, I need to now let them be the expert and, and tell me what that means to them and how I best work with them. How long does it take to acquire the skills um, <laughs> to be uh Adequate. Uh, I suppose it's a lifelong, you know, it's like a lot of skills. You, you never, you can always improve. But in your experience, how long does it take people to become culturally responsive or effectively culturally responsive in their in their work? It's um, it's, it's I, I feel like I'm still learning, and I think that well, to give you an example, social workers already have a a, a degree, and then we put them through basically a 12-week training package, so a couple of hours every week where you're working on it. So the thing about it is that some people might never get there um, because you need to learn, you need to have that really strong self-awareness. You need to be able to challenge yourself and have people around you who can challenge you and say, hmm, I think you're a bit biased in how you're looking at this. You need to sort of think about the lens you're using to look at this. So it's an on, it's, but you're right, it's absolutely an ongoing process and you need to be constantly reflecting. And because culture evolves as well, culture is not, you know, stagnant. So it's about understanding um, that those things can change and, and that you need to always be checking in that your knowledge is up to date about various cultures and, and your own biases because they change as well. So inside the APS reform agenda, the public sector is is focusing on this specific area where it's looking to set the standard for employment and, and cultural competency. Yeah. Why why is it important that the public sector is culturally competent and culturally responsive? Um, I, I guess it's because for us to be effective um, as an institution or as the APS is that we need to be able to build policies and and design and implement policies that are fit for purpose. So, which is fine when the majority of people in Australia are white Australians. So, because at the moment we've got, that's the dominant culture is that um, a white Australia, because obviously that's, uh, that's been our majority for so long. But as, as time changes, that's not um, who we're working with anymore. We have to be able to represent the the society that is around us. So that means that we need to have people coming in who are, um, who might have disabilities. We need people who um, are multicultural. We need Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and they need to be able to come in and be and to get the strength of that diverse workforce, we need to know that they are actually um, able to bring their whole selves to work because that's how we get that diversity. And um, and I, I heard a really interesting comment when I was in Canada recently about um, currently a lot of public services, they recruit for diversity, so they bring in all those people for diversity, but then they onboard for assimilation. We sort of um, have all these policies around that the policy procedures reinforce yeah. that um, that to act in a certain way when really we want to bring out that diversity. What were you doing in Canada? 
uh, it was really exciting as part of our, so part of my scholarship is that you get a travel allowance. So I spent six weeks in Canada and I uh, spent a few weeks living with a, a Gitsan chief and got to go around and, and meet a lot of um, First Nations communities around British Columbia. And then I spent three months with their, the Canadian Public Service and um, sort of a bit of uh, knowledge dissemination, I guess, uh, teaching them a little bit what we've been doing, learning what they're doing and, and hopefully giving me some ideas about uh, some of the um, some of the pitfalls from the way they work now, which is sort of more closely aligned to self determination of their First Nation communities, and you know having their a lot of their service delivery now is done by Indigenous organisations, and looking at the strengths, but also looking at where some of the issues might be, so that I can think about what might be coming for us in the future and how we can change it. Now, this is completely unfair, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, what's one thing you learnt from your time with the, the Gitsang chief and what's one thing that you learnt uh, in your time with the Canadian Public Service? So the one thing I learnt from being with the Gitsang chief, I think, is the value of vulnerability. I think that about you don't need to be the expert in your culture to be the best advocate for your culture. So it was about that um, I think before I left that in my view elders and the way I see elders in Australia is that you have to have all the knowledge and you're, you know, got the expertise and the wisdom, whereas the Gitsan chief, she was very comfortable in herself that um, that she didn't have necessarily have all of the wisdom but she knew how to harness it from others um, and I thought that was a real strength. Um, and the other was what? What was your the public other? sector? You, ah. the, you had three weeks with the public sector, and you said it's interesting that you were saying that they are um, perhaps in some ways uh, more mature in, in the way that they in, in deal with their First Nations people. But what was one thing that you that you took from them? Well, interesting enough, I went there thinking that they were more advanced than the Australian Public Service um, with how they work with their. Uh, Indigenous peoples and and in some ways they are but I also noticed that because they now have Indigenous communities sort of Indigenous organisations delivering services themselves that they have sort of let go of building cultural capability within their public servants. Um, ah, so they've outsourced the they've responsibility. Outsourced it when I think okay. that that's not the answer because they're still yep. guiding and creating new policies so I, I felt that was a gap, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So let's let's turn the, the the spotlight back onto the APS. So, um, are there any gaps in the public sector, or what are those gaps in its re, uh, current approach to cultural uh, responsiveness? I think that uh, I think that the gaps that I see is um, very much about we're we're very good now at at sort of trying to identify. Indigenous culture and understanding what Indigenous culture is and how it might impact, but we're 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 not looking at our own culture as decision makers. For example, we're not um, appreciating the culture of the people within the public service, and also the public service itself has a culture and our um, policies. And so, by focusing only on Indigenous culture, um, we're not really we're sort of missing the boat a little bit in in being able to change our mindset and culture um, internally to be more culturally capable. So if the focus is always on Indigenous culture, we're not really focusing on what the APS can do differently um, 
from their own cultural perspectives. And I think it's a bigger gap than just the mob. I think that if we were able to be more um, culturally responsive, that that that's there's some real wins there for other diverse groups. You know, for people with disability, for example, if we were not, if we made sure we learn a bit about people with disability, but then also thought about what about the ableist um, group and how does that impact that group it's going to strengthen it overall so and I guess I had a perfect example somebody from disability um council of australia said the other day or not disability sorry diverse diversity council of australia she mentioned the other day that when you build a building at the moment you might build it um you automatically the default is to build a building with stairs um which automatically means that you have to change it um if somebody needs a wheelchair but if if every building standard was built with a ramp um, then we would have a, it would be a different ball game. It would mean that everybody could use it from the start. And why don't we do, why don't we build our policies that way? Why don't we build policies in a way that automatically include everybody um, rather than have to add it on later? It's a challenge though. <laughs> That's a huge challenge. But if I was to hand you this magic wand that I've got in my hand at the moment um, and you were able to, to make two or three decisions that would really help the APS you know, strengthen this ability of, you know, cultural responsiveness. What are, what are those changes that you would, uh, you would make? Uh, the first change I would make would be to run training for every single public servant around how to understand what their cultural identity is. So that would be about, you know, understanding their family values, uh, the sort of culture they've grown up in and, and how that impacts them uh, now, how that comes out in the way they make decisions or how they view the world, um, because I think that's something that's missing. I'd also make me um, a secretary. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> Let's hope Gordon's listening. Um, <laughs> and uh, look, I guess that um, if I had a perfect world, I would go through and do a discourse analysis of every policy document, every procedure that we have, and and re, reset um, the APS and and how it approaches things because we're not starting with a blank canvas. We've got a white canvas and it means that we really at the moment when we try to increase cultural cap- capability, we're sort of trying to build onto something that's already there when it would be nice to be able to start fresh. But, it, well, yeah, exactly. But it is encouraging that it's being called out um, in the APS reform. So that sort of gives it that legitimacy and gives gives it that priority. So it's then really about maintaining progress from there and not falling back once you make some some progress. So do you have any advice for people who are listening now thinking, okay, I'm going to take this challenge on. I'm going to this all makes perfect sense to me. Um, and I think the key word that you used a little bit earlier on was um, humility. You know that people really have to uh, uh, you know, dunk themselves in a big vat of humility and to really, you know, probably unlearn a whole lot of things and really listen and to be uh, present um, with this opportunity. But how how do we maintain, there's good intention, but how do we make sure we make progress, but then how do we maintain progress? It's a really good, look, it's a really good question. And I think that it is the humility and it's that being reflexive. So it's about constantly um Look, I love – so I think one of the biggest thing, best things that's happened to us is having uh, Gordon De, De Brewer come in because I feel like it, he does have that humility around 
um, we don't have to be the experts and if we make mistakes, it's okay to own it and that's how we learn. And I think that's a really important way forward for the APS. And I think for um, because you can't just become culturally responsive and just stay that way, it's about that constant learning, that constant journey and reflecting on checking in, like checking in with, in, with your um Working, if you're working with people who are Indigenous, checking in with them, you know, what, what makes you culturally safe in the workplace? What do we need to do differently? How do you think we're going? What's our scorecard like? And I think that's the other thing. Our scorecard needs to be marked by community, not by the APS. At the moment, we sort of, I feel that we um, score ourselves and I think that we need to have more of that feedback from community. And I do think, I'm really excited, like I do feel like the the environment's changed. I think that we're on a different path and I think it's the right path to improving that cultural capability. So listen, just just before we wrap it up, because we're coming close on time, just in terms of other First Nations people who, I don't know, may, may in fact be in or may have been or may, might today be in the circumstance that you were in um, all those years ago when you walked into that Centrelink office and started to think about your future, uh, but what advice do you have to them about being able to equip themselves so that they can uh, not just survive, but they can thrive in this environment and perhaps you know start to make their way through to these leadership positions that we spoke about earlier? It's it's a great question because the thing is, is that I'm no different to most mob out there. We all. Um, almost all of us have had that experience of impact from intergenerational trauma and a lot of and whether we're public servants or not we're all facing those same sort of issues and and I think it's about just knowing that you're no different to anybody else um, in the public service you just got to keep moving forward and I think for me to stay resilient and to keep going it's about understanding your why you've got to know why you're there and what you're doing and to work towards that and I think the other thing is to tell people don't be afraid to tell people you're interested in leadership roles like you know name it let people know that you are interested because I find that um, there is a willingness now to, to increase the leadership in the APS for Indigenous people so it's there and the, I think the biggest thing is to grab every opportunity I quite often find myself um, <laughs> almost drowning because um, when the opportunity is there, I take it and then worry about how I'm going to do it later and, and I just keep doing that. And like me doing a PhD is the biggest, my friends think it's the biggest joke they've ever heard, um, but you just keep going and you find a way and just keep grabbing those opportunities because the opportunities are there, but mob don't put their hand up often enough to do them. And, and I think that they just need to keep doing that because um, if you want a seat at the table, that's what you've got to do. Well, I'm a, a bit of advice to Gordon DeBrow, look out, here comes Lisa Conway <laughs> on the way to, uh, to, to the uh, secretary position of the department of whichever you uh, would like <laughs> to service. So, um, Lisa, you're an inspiration. What a great story. Uh, and thank you for being so honest, so open, so humble, and so generous, not only with your time, but your insights. I think there's so much practical uh, wisdom uh, and applied knowledge that I think a lot of our listeners could take away today into their into their jobs, into their relationships, into their uh, communities, into their houses and into their homes, into their sporting clubs. Uh, because, again, it, it is one conversation at a time, isn't it, that uh, progress will continue to be made. Absolutely, you just got to keep chipping away and keep moving in that in that right direction, and and um, it is going to get there. Fantastic. Well, Lisa Conway, thank you so much for being a guest on Work with Purpose. 
what a fabulous conversation. Um, really, you know, to be inspired by someone like that who is a really, you know, to have had that that challenge, that privation, that difficulty, but this sense of just continuing to go on, but then not just the responsibility to herself and her family, but to the wider community and now to be taking on the challenge of how do we as an APS inside this APS reform become better equipped to be more effective in that cultural responsiveness, which again is that applied end of a cultural awareness. Awareness is one bit and that's all great, but this responsiveness so that we get better outcomes for our First Nations people. So thanks uh, to Lisa for coming on to the program today. Uh, Work With Purpose um, is produced in collaboration between Content Group and the Institute of Public Administration of Australia, ACT, and supported by our good friends at the Australian Public Service Commission. Now, we're about 86, 87 episodes in, something like that. So there's so much wonderful public service content that you can go back and listen to, not just today's interview with Lisa. So whether you're on Spotify, Apple, uh, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, I downloaded Google Podcasts on on my phone today for some reason because I I couldn't track it down anywhere else. So um, that's a good place to go as well. But please, yeah, uh, just... Put us into there into your consideration set. I know there's loads of content out there, but if you do want to really connect with what's going on in the Australian Public Service and Australian Public Service reform and many of the wonderful stories, we are uh, the place to come for that. So um, a rating or a review, one last little ask before I go. Uh, if you do have time, Please, if you can get into those uh, those, app, uh, those apps uh, and leave a rating or review, it does help us to be found. So more people will be able to listen to the story of Lisa Conway and uh, more people will uh, be better off because they've listened to that conversation. So uh, a rating or review, please, um, that would be gratefully accepted. Uh, my name is David Pembroke. Uh, Work With Purpose will be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment... It's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.